0: Hey, Matt Tegman here from Elucidations. I just thought I'd uh, open this episode by doing a quick plug for a cool podcast that I just found out about. Uh, They released their first season already, um, and I just started listening to them. It's called Reductio. It's hosted by Andrew Lavin, and it's a podcast that um, explains key arguments from the history of philosophy or from contemporary philosophy in the format of a radio documentary. Um, It's philosophically rigorous, and it's really fun to listen to. So, anyway, that's the plug, and up next is our interview with James Couple on counterfactual inference and automated explanation. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Dominic Rio. With us today is James Couple, a PhD student in computer science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and professional mentor to experienced software engineers at jamescouplecoaching.com. You may also have heard of him in connection with the security analysis of the Votes voting app, which was recently covered in the New York Times. And he is here to discuss. Counterfactual Inference and Automated Explanation. James Couple, welcome to Elucidations. Thank you. I feel very welcome. Excellent. Okay, so our listeners may have heard of the topic of counterfactuals from our previous episode, episode 91 with Paolo Santorio on the logic of counterfactuals. But for people who didn't listen to that episode, maybe we could just sort of like introduce the topic. So, like, what is a counterfactual conditional statement? What would be an example of one?
2: Example of counterfactual. If it had rained today, I would have brought an umbrella. So there's a few features that make it counterfactual, counterfactual. And to really iron out the difference between a counterfactual and a different kind of statement, I have to explain what's called the causal hierarchy. So the simplest kind of statements you can make is something like, based on looking at the sky, it will rain later today. And this is a question that you can answer and get a statistical estimate on it just by making a giant table of, like, how many days were there this kind of cloud and then was there rain? So it's like you're predicting the future in that case based on prior observations. Yes. So it's like the things that are happening today are drawn from the same distribution as the things that happened yesterday and the day before. That is prediction, level one of the causal hierarchy. Level two of the causal hierarchy is intervention. So you might not know this, but humanity has invented weather control quite a while ago. And I understand, uh, just from reading news articles, that we basically know how to do one thing in weather control, which is to shoot silver iodide into the sky. Silver iodide is a nucleating site for clouds. And... For some meteorological reason, it can both be used to create and destroy clouds. So for instance, in the 2008 Beijing Olympics, they had cannons of this stuff situated outside the city because everything had to be perfect. They did not want it to rain. So let's intervene on the weather now. Let's ask the question, if I shoot I iodide into the sky, now will there be rain? And this you can no longer answer just by looking at the table what's happened in the past because... You're changing the correlations. Maybe yesterday there's naturally a lot of silver iodide because of lightning. This time, the silver iodide without the lightning, and so all the other things it's correlated with are messed up. And there's a whole field of causal inference which is dedicated to how to answer this kind of prediction in the face of intervention, without having to do a randomized controlled experiments. But the gold standard is still a randomized controlled experiment. So there's prediction. You're just observing some facts, and then making inferences about the future, or also about the past. Like, given the sky, did it rain yesterday? There's no time in statistics.
1: So it's more like we're just observers,
2: but we're not actually like making stuff happen. Yeah, they're like, I have a giant table of list of all things that happens, and I just count them up and see what goes together.
1: Right. Whereas if you're doing something, it's not just a table you're looking at. You're actually like, or it's as though you're like putting stuff into the table.
2: <laughs> yes. So then there is counterfactual. Now this is a question like, given what I see today, what would the sky look like if I would shot silver iodide into the sky yesterday? So there's a little more going on here. So now we're both making some predictions about various pieces of the state of the world yesterday, then doing an intervention there, and then looking at today. We can say, you rewind, go back in time, Rather, you predict the past based on your observation today. Then you intervene in the past, and you play time forward and look at the new future.
1: Yeah, it's almost as though you're, like, running the clock forward again to see if the present comes out a certain way. Like, if you were God and you could run the simulation of the universe backwards and then change something and then run it forwards again, what would happen? Yes, exactly. Cool. So these are three types of statements. And, uh, yeah, I can sort of see how we're... um, ascending further and further into like what-if scenarios as we go closer and closer up the hierarchy to the third place in the hierarchy, which is counterfactual statements. So why are computer
2: scientists generally interested in counterfactuals? So I can give two answers to that. First, I'm going to backpedal and say, when you say that computer scientists are interested in counterfactuals, it's more that we, my collaborators and I, are interested in counterfactuals. So we do have a little bit of fight to convince the rest of the world. So I'll give you two answers to why we care as computer scientists. One answer is from the AI perspective that my colleagues have. And one answer is from the programming tools builders perspective that I have. So I'll start with the AI perspective because that one is more about building systems that affect the real world. The reason that AI builders should be interested in counterfactuals is because there are a lot of things in life that are counterfactual questions. So very basic ones are looking at the efficacy of a drug versus placebo is a counterfactual question. This person got better. Is it because of the drug? Similarly, in law, there's a ton of legal theory about the allocation of blame. You know, it's murder if you cause someone to die. And So there was a case where a police officer was jumping after a guy who was running away and fell and died. And the guy who was running after was charged with murder. So these are counterfactual questions, and we want computers to be able to handle them. Hmm.
1: It, it seems like in all these examples, too, um, there's a notion of like cause and effect. Um, there's the sense that if we observe this effect, how can we tell that something was the cause of it? Well, we go back and we, and we remove the cause and see if we still got the effect. That's maybe one like well, heuristic.
2: Yeah. So we're kind of d- touching into the distinction between general causation and actual causation. General causation is statements such as lightning causes fire, actual causation is statements about a specific configuration of events, such as lightning caused the fire last night. The thing you talked about just now was A caused B in a certain configuration because if A hadn't happened, B wouldn't have happened. That is called Lewis causality. And there is a ton of theory about why that's actually a very unsatisfactory definition of actual causation. because So everything that happens causally in Real life also has analogs in programming. So I just talked now about allocation of blame. Well, where's the blame when something goes wrong in the world? Well, there's also things that go wrong in computers that we care about, and where's the blame there? Yeah. So where's the bug in the system? It can be a counterfactual question.
1: And it's interesting, both from like how, the, how do we fix it point of view, and from the who's responsible point of view. So both from a practical and a moral you know, point of view. Yeah. Right, so computer programs have a lot of bugs. Bugs are like mistakes in the computer code that make the program behave differently from how it's supposed to behave. So there are all kinds of famous examples of this where you go to a website and you intend to log in and do whatever, check your social media, and the website won't let you log in. Uh, it doesn't accept your password, even your password is correct. Or whatever, you know, Obamacare rolls out and the website crashes when people try to use it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whenever stuff on the computer doesn't work, it's usually the result of a bug, And then the thing we want to do to get it to work again is find the bug. What's an example of a counterfactual statement involving a bug in computer code?
2: So I want to talk a little bit about a project out of Stanford 15 or so years ago called the CBI, Cooperative Bug Isolation Project, which was done by a guy named Ben Libelitz, who is a student of Alex Aiken at Stanford and is now faculty at uh, Wisconsin. So the other cooperative bug isolation is, so I'm a programmer at Microsoft, I'm working on Word, or I'm at Mozilla, working on Firefox. You know, I can spend a lot of time testing and trying to see if I can do stuff that makes it crash or does something else. But, you know, there are already millions of people in the world who are running this day-to-day. Can I somehow use their data from them running the app to help me find the bugs? And so what they did is they would instrument the code. So they basically... a lot of little probes in the code saying record whether at this point x was greater than 10. Record whether at this point these two things were equal. A ton of stuff like that. Collect all this data about facts that are true at different points in the program's running. Then we would report these back to home and then sometimes like it would crash on someone's machine and then they would try to correlate this information they've collected with the existence of these crashes. And they got decent results but uh, what they found is that th- because they are doing a purely statistical approach, they are not really able to distinguish which are the useful correlating facts to report. What they actually want is to, to answer is a question of a causality. So something that they'd find is like when I run this program on a thousand m- megabyte image, then it's more likely to crash. And this is true because like, whatever weird artifacts were in this image that's causing it to crash, it's more likely to occur in a bigger image. So there are a lot of things like that that they would pick up on. like Everything that's correlated with the input being big is predictive of a bug. And that was not useful. So what they need to do is they need a way to distinguish the predicates, the facts that are correlated with the thing crashing versus the things that are actually causals, thinking can better minimize and understand the root problem. And if we really wanted to do the best job possible, it's, uh, it said, ca- there are a number of counterfactual questions to ask here. Actually, like, even not as a programmer, but as a user, you can ask kind of debugging questions. So, like, I'm over your shoulder, you're having trouble with your program, and you're like, like, help, Jimmy, like, my thing is freezing, it's, I can't send a file, and I just look at your screen, I see what's on your screen right now, and, like, I bet you clicked this wrong button 10 minutes ago. You shouldn't have clicked it, and then we'll be fine. That's a kind of factual statements.
1: Yeah, and this kind of um, you know, what you might call careful analysis of what a program does at runtime can be really tricky because every time you do something with a program in real life, you often do something slightly different each time, and you don't necessarily know what exactly you did different each time. So it can be often difficult to reproduce a bug if you don't know what caused it. So um, often what you'll do is you'll begin with a very general statement. Okay, well, I know it was sometime in this time range that the bug happened, something I did here probably because I swear it wasn't ever doing it before this, and then we're going to try to narrow it down to something more specific to get to the cause.
2: Yes, so debugging does involve a lot of this kind of detective work, thinking I see the states, what might have happened in the previous state. So I'm kind of wondering, is the idea behind trying to fix these computer bugs to want to find a better way than just, like, looking at these correlations and doing the detective work? Uh, So first, two things we're just talking about. There's a normal way that people do debugging, which, I mean, there's a lot of techniques they use, but they all involve some variant of what you call detective work, looking at stuff, figuring out why it's happening. When I was talking about the correlations earlier... That is not the detective work. That is this guy at Stanford for his PhD. This is trying to write a tool that to collects a lot of data to help people with this. And then discovering that there's this missing piece of causality where the information they're finding, it's hard to tease out the, the signal from the noise. So the idea is to try to, instead of looking for correlations, to try and pin down the causality. So when I started working on that project in 2015, that was the idea of still being able to collect a lot of data from users that can help in debugging, but we're also getting the causal information that's more directly effective at isolating the problem. And long story short, I could not actually get that to work. So what was it
1: about that project that ended up not working and what are some of the lessons that you drew from that?
2: Uh, So a big lesson I drew from it is that the field of causal inference is still pretty immature. And there are a number of basic ways that we develop the theory of causal inference that are a mismatch to a, applying to a programming context. And let's talk a bit about these broader issues, causal inference. Uh, so one is the definition of an intervention? So I, I want to say, this program crashed because this list was too big. It was greater than length 10. That means if I go back in time and set the length of the list to greater than 10, it will crash. Well, what does that mean to set a list? It's kind of like saying, how heavy would your car be if there were 10 items in it? It depends what those 10 items are. What the program does depends on what the list of length 10 is. So, so can make an analogy to talking about a different kind of derived property, temperature is not a primordial property of the universe. It's a statistical summary of the amount of energy in each molecule in the air. So, I want to say, what will happen if I set the temperature of this room to 100 degrees? And a lot of the time, you can work with a model where you can say that, but maybe you need something that's super precise, and, like talk about chemical reactions happening in a different place in the room. Then it actually matters how you impart energy to the molecules in this room. So setting the temperature to the room to 100 degrees corresponds to this astronomical number of possibilities for how you put energy into each molecule. And so, for some questions, it matters which one. Another problem is an uh, that a lot of the theory of causal inference kind of breaks down the presence of determinism, which is kind of a weird thing. So most of the time, when you have something that's always runs the same way, it's not random, it's deterministic, that makes it easier. But in this setting, it makes it harder. So a lot of the causal inference stuff developed by Judea Pearl, it kind of relies on every combination of events being observable. So if you wants to... Be able to predict whether creating rain will cause mud, you need to have seen rain and mud before. So, forget the fact that we know a little bit of physics and engineering and can't predict what will happen. Suppose I just went into, you know, like I see a, like a one story straw building and I want to intervene on it, in the world, set the number of stories 10. Now I want to look at my table of stuff that's happened in the past to predict what will happen. And if you've never seen a ten-story straw building before, then you get a giant cannot-divide-by-zero error. And the third thing of determinism is that determinism can actually introduce a lot more spurious lack of correlations. In causal inference, there's something called the faithfulness condition. So, suppose I have a deck of cards, then I deal half the deck to Dominic, and then he deals half of his half to Matt. So my cards cause Dominic's cards, which cause Matt's cards. And so there is going to be a correlation between what I have and between what Matt has, which is mediated through Dominic. But there's a strategy I can use where, say, it's like I'm going to give a bunch of cards to Dominic, but it's always going to contain the Ace of Spades, and he's just going to give the Ace of Spades to Matt. And now, so long as I always have the ace of spades, there is absolutely no correlation between what I have and what Matt has. So that is determinism, which is destroying a correlation. But if you just look at the causal graph of what I have, caused what, what Dominic has, caused what Matt has, you just look at this graph and you think, oh, these things should be correlated.
1: Hmm. So it's like if they're guaranteed to be correlated for some other reason other than what's causing what.
2: So if I were to do all of this process randomly then what I have correlates with what Matt has. But if I were to say, I'm always going to do this, he's always going to do this, then I can actually can actually hide information about what I have and destroy this connection. And so that's something which, in all the settings where people like Pearl were doing causal inference, was not really a thing, but when you're doing normal programming, everything is deterministic by default.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that is a surprising result. Because you would think if the um, results of a uh, the evolution of a system in a simulation or just the results of, a, of like some computer code, like what's going to output, are more predictable, that would rein the problem in and make it easier. But yeah, this reveals a way in which since that's introducing further constraints not having to do with things causing each other about what the outcomes are going to be, that's going to interfere with our ability to identify the causes. So one of your research projects has been to develop a computer language that has the ability to describe retroactive interventions into the past. What are some of the design features of that language? Like, how is it set up, and how do you get this effect where you're able to describe these, you know, these hypothetical retroactive reality-changing scenarios uh, to get a better feel for what the causes and effects are?
2: Sure. So I'll just let your context this. So I told you about some of the stuff I was doing back in 2015 and failing on uh, applies and in causal inference to bug finding, to analyzing programs, understanding what they do. So fast forward from 2015 to 2018, and my office mate, Zenit Tavares, starts uh, getting interested in causality. And much of his thesis, he recently finished his PhD, much of his thesis is on probabilistic programming. Probabilistic programming is a pretty new hot thing. So a lot of people are creating these fancy statistical models for describing things. So say like I know I want to model how a fraud works, so I say like somewhere out there there's some number of people who have some motives and you know like some extra number of credit cards get stolen and then like there's some decisions happen that cause someone to go to a place in that's not too far from them. So I can describe a ton and ton of unknowns and random choices or unmodeled, non-trypting choices, but it can still be a very rich picture of how fraud works. So probabilistic programming is a language specifically designed for building these models, where, where like, every variable is a statistical random variable, one of many possibilities. And you know I just write down, like let some unknown a fraction of people be fraudsters, like, let there be some distribution, like, but there would be some number of places that are nearby where you might uh, try to buy stuff. So I can play this for normally, and if you play it for normally, it's just like a program with randomness, which gives you like a random state of the world. But the interesting thing about probabilistic programming is it also allows for inference. It also allows you to play these backwards. It also allows you to say, you know, of all the ways of running this program, where in which I see it's someone spends $100 at the Apple store, and whereas before they'd spend $100 at a different Apple store on the other side of the country, like, what fraction of those are fraud? Mm-hmm. So privacy programming, programming language is specifically designed for building these and models new inference on them. Mm. So we realize that this is a much more promising setting for doing causal reasoning for a number of reasons. One is that the programs are a lot smaller than the real programs I was interested in finding bugs in. And another is that you now do have more randomness and less determinism, although the problem determinism the still applies. You still have some. So Zeta built a language called Omega. Uh, and a l- long story short, I think Omega is kind of built in a more elegant way than most probabilistic languages directly based on, on measure theory, which is the mathematics behind probability. And, and he discovered that he actually had a pretty clean way of defining intervention and that once he did this, we actually got counterfactuals for free. Hmm. So I and my other office mate, Xin Zhang, came in to help him on this project and try to give a, a rich, well-defined formal semantics. So I can guess I can go into a bit about how we, we define counterfactuals in a probabilistic programming setting. So the people were doing uh, counterfactuals and uh, intervention in causal graphs. So the way it works is called the Twin Network construction. It basically means, so the question, if it rained, I would have brought an umbrella. So we have some causal network. It's like, these are the factors that cause rain. These are the factors that influence my decision to bring an umbrella. We create two copies of that network, one for the factual world, one for the counterfactual. Then we link them and saying the background facts you know, like about how sunny it was. Those are the same in both the factual and the counterfactual worlds. Now for the counterfactual half of the network, we modify it. So we have a node in there. We have a variable that says whether it rains, and it's like depends on all these other things. We just change that node, cut everything that's influenced it, and just say, did it rain? Yes. Then once we've done that, now we have a big causal graph that contains both the actual world and like facts about how sunny it was and the counterfactual world. And then we say like here is statistical facts about how sunny it is, and we do normal probabilistic inference. So that's the twin network construction. And this breaks down when you start to go into programs because it assumes that I can make a graph where well okay, well we'll so say instead of I want to talk about uh, whether it rained today. I want to talk about whether it rained every day for the last year or every day for an unbound amount of time into the past. Now, instead of having one year before that it rained, I have n of them for unknown n. So that's kind of moving from a fixed static setting to a program setting. But really, when we're doing these graphs, they can kind of be thought of as programs that are straight line code, Just means they don't have loops. It's just do this, do this, do this, do this. So we're thinking, can we adapt this definition to a setting that does have loops? And so the principle kind of works the same. It's uh, very elegant. So now we're saying, so I have uh, this variable, which is defined in this way, and it depends on that, which depends on that, which depends on that, which depends on that. Depends on that. So to define a counterfactual, I'm going to, to create another copy of this reach back in the past, and change something it depends on transitively. Now I can run that and get a new value, and I can do the same kind of statistical inference. So let's so make a very concrete example. Let's play a game. I'm going to, to flip a seven-sided die. It uh, can produce a number between zero and six. Before I show you the results, I want you to guess a number. Three. Okay, so the rule is that... If your guess is within one of the value of the die, then you win, else you lose. So say you guess three, and I can just tell you you lost.
1: Oh, man.
2: Okay. So given that you played three and lost, suppose that you had played one instead. What's your probability of winning? I still haven't told you what the real value was. I've just told you that three was not within one of the real answer. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) So... You play 3 and loss, so the value can't be 2, 3, or 4, but it could be five, six, zero, or 1. So if you played 1 instead, then you'd win if it's either 0 or 1 and lose if it's 5 or 6, so you have a one-half chance of winning. Ah, okay. So the way that you write this in Omega, the way that it runs in Omega is I define a function, which is my game. So, so first, somewhere else, you haven't seen it, I set the true value of the die. Now, Let's say I have some program that takes your guess. So you give me three. I define a variable, set a variable to three. And I have a sub program which uh, takes the true value, random value of the die, and spits up whether you win and lost. So I'm going to do condition on this thing evaluating to you lost. And then I'm going to create another copy of this and say, in this one, I'm going to set your guess to one. And conditions on the real execution of having lost, run this forward. And tell me how likely we are to win. And conceptually, what it's doing is that I've written all this stuff that depends on what your guess was. And I'm basically just running that code again, but retroactively set your guess to something else.
1: Right. And it's exploiting the fact that we
2: have some information about the algorithm, namely that you can be within one. Uh, it's exploring the information that I actually have written down in code exactly what the whole process was mm. of going from your guess to when it mm.
1: So one potential future direction for this line of research that people are interested in is in getting computer software to actually furnish us with explanations of why something happened. So how does this um, twin approach, you know, using the actual history and the counterfactual history? Help us with that.
2: Yes, thank you for that. So a lot of this is future work, stuff we haven't done yet, so I don't want to sell it too hard. We haven't proven that what we want to do is actually going to work, but we're pretty excited about it. So I'm first going to start by going back to earlier I talked about general causation versus actual causation, general causation being lightning causes fire, actual causation being what caused the fire last night. Because the theory of explanations is built on the theory of actual causation. So there have been a number of definitions proposed for actual causation, again, in the setting of causal graphs, where you have a fixed number of events. Some unpublished work that I've done is trying to generalize this to a program setting. So I have a working definition, which is... It's not sure how easy it is. it, it will be to actually get computers to do this and it might be very inefficient. But a definition where... I can have two tic-tac-toe AIs play each other and then say that the cause of the first AI having lost is the first mistake it made. Mm, Okay, right.
1: So like sort of strategic causes
2: in that example. Yeah, so there's another definition that someone else that it looked at and I thought about it and I realized that it would say the actual cause of the AI having lost was every single move it made but I came up with a definition where the actual cause would be the thing where it could have actually done something, something different, which is the first mistake it made, mm. where it switched from a potentially winning position to a losing if the other AI plays well position.
1: And I guess in certain cases you can mathematically determine, right? Like, yeah. having made this move, it's impossible to win now.
2: Yeah. Assuming the other AI plays optimally, it's impossible to win now. Yeah. you know, In combinatorial game theory... These are called winning positions versus losing positions. say, you know, it's a winning position. If you can make a move, that will be a losing position for the other player. It's a losing position if no matter what move the other player makes, it will give you a winning position to play from. Hmm. Okay. So the input to this then, I guess, is a
1: full game of Tic-Tac-Toe so, um, with two players.
2: Um. It really, it's going to the input. It's going to be the entire game tree of all possibilities, okay. which is determined by like having the code of at least of the opposing AI.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. So
2: this works well on paper. I'm not sure I can actually program this efficiently.
1: I see. I see. So we have the whole basically like headspace of the opponent essentially as part of the input.
2: Yeah. We have the rules basically of the game. Saying the input is now a fixed process, whereas you, the player. Or the AI you're analyzing has free will.
1: Uh, uh-huh. I see. I see.
2: So does that mean that the input would be like, if this move is made, then we know that the opponent will make this move? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So at that point, it kind of devolves into a one-player game. So, for a given event, there are many actual causes. So, when you're talking about explanations, you're going from actual causes why did this happen, to a useful answer, why did this happen. If a ball hits you in the face, you ask why, a useless answer is because it was next to your face when it was going 90 miles an hour. A more useful explanation is that I threw it at you. So what we want to do is based on a theory of explanations given by Joseph Halpern and Judea Pearl in the Journal of British Philosophy about 15 years ago, so they say, you, as the listener, have a subjective model of the world. So the ball hits you in the face. So you know some things about how balls fly. So you're fully aware that it's uh, being next to you and going towards you will cause it to hit you. And then you have a distribution over many other factors. So it maybe it hits you in the back of the head. You, don't, you, have, you know how the world works. You have some idea of what might be behind you. But you don't know, know if there are people there. You don't know if there is, say, a ball-spitting machine there. So you have a distribution over causal models. You only have partial information about the worlds and how it works.
1: And the distribution is something like how likely you think different all the different possible outcomes are, how likely each of them, and them is.
2: Not just outcomes, but it's more about the structure. Mm-hmm. So it's less about being uncertain over about how likely I am to throw a ball at you versus... And certain about whether there is even someone around who could throw a ball. Mm, Okay. Or about maybe you're also certain about gravity where to go a step further back. So from this distribution you have about the world, uh, you can talk about information. Information theory is something that basically went from zero to a complete theory in one paper in the 50s by Claude Shannon. So... If there's a very low probability event that happens, and I tell you about it, it's very high information. It's basically the one sentence summary. So, you know, if I tell you that there's a baseball spitting practice machine right behind you, that'd be a very surprising fact with very high explanatory power. It's a great explanation. And if I tell you there's a baseball right behind you going 90 miles an hour, given that it hits you in the head pretty hard, it'd be a very unsurprising fact. So that's low information. So an explanation is revealing some fact about the causal model that caused the event to occur, which greatly reduces your uncertainty.
1: So maybe we could walk through those two scenarios and think about, like, how one of them is more uncertainty reducing than the other. So in the case of the baseball launching machine, that's going to reduce my uncertainty less than uh, in the, in the um,
2: case of uh, someone throwing it at me. It's going to reduce your uncertainty more. Oh, sorry. Just going to give you more information. And that's given there's a baseball throwing machine right behind you, first it's a very surprising fact. Uh, And we're in a conference room at a university right now. It's not a place you'd expect to find one of these. Yes. Second, there's not much more that needs to be said. Given that it's there, you might place decent credence on it being on. Like, you know, that's a pretty likely outcomes being hit in the back of the head given that it's there and given mm-hmm. all you know about how mm-hmm. balls fly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas if I just told you there's a person standing behind you there's still a lot more information you want to know that would lead to this outcome mm. you know it's like you still have the uncertainty of okay is this person angry at me for some reason and is he a major league pitcher
1: yeah yeah and, like, the question, how did that person get here, is different, too, right? In the case of the machine, it's just so weird that the machine would be here in the first
2: place. That's sort of less salient. Um, yeah, but, but, like, once you know it's there, there's not much more you need to be told about why you're hitting the head. Mm, yeah.
1: That's interesting, right? But it's, like, a little bit more normal for a person to be here in a strange way because it's more normal for a person to be here. It's more in line with expectations.
2: Yes. And, I mean, given that you're hitting the back of the head pretty hard by a baseball, it's yeah. very normal, a split second earlier for it to have been flying towards your head 90 miles an hour. Yeah. And because it's so normal, that's not a useful explanation.
1: Hmm. Mm. So what are some potential applications of this, you know, approach to generating explanations for um,
2: remarkable phenomena? So we had pitched this giant project to the Air Force uh, about using it in disaster relief scenarios and – you know, like trying to get an AI to infer why someone is walking by the side of the road, or ask, get a useful answer the question, why did this car crash? But our grant application was rejected, so, so I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> you know, but there's still lots of scenarios where you want explanations, and you just get a trace of all the things that led up to the events, then you'll be very unhappy. Hmm.
1: Hmm. So maybe scenarios where it's just there are too many factors. It's, like, difficult for a human to wrap their mind around all the possible factors that could have led to. Like, maybe, like, a meteorological explanation is too complicated. There's too much stuff to take into account, but it might be easier to. Yeah, yeah. so I
2: mean, if your meteorological explanation involves all the movements of water molecules, then Mm -hmm. then no. So a lot of the the more near-term applications we're talking about trying to get this to work in, are these small mechanical settings like mm. billiards or Jenga? Mm-hmm. Like why did my tower crash, the base wasn't stable, or someone shook the table? But you can imagine if you get it to work there, then maybe the shot at getting it to work in more interesting questions like why did the car crash? Mm. I'm sure there are plenty of people who would love an AI who can answer that question and give a yeah. informative answer.
1: Right, right. Or if there's a tragic accident at the factory or any of this kind of stuff we're we're just trying to um yeah almost like the physical version of what we were talking about earlier with the software bugs.
2: Yeah, so coming full circle, I talked about it uh, explaining car crashes and that's great. You know, but back to my main specialty, I would also like to be able to explain program crashes.
1: Right, any attempt to sort of retroactively understand a disaster situation, which is, you know, unfortunately that comes up when there're disasters. This is potentially useful for Yeah, I think this gets to something that I find really interesting about your work, which is that you're providing sort of like a, you know, communication line between really abstract theoretical computer science stuff and, you know, practical real-world issues. And I guess this is just sort of one example of that. James Couple, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening.